This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. The Premier League, Liverpool blink first in the title race, but should Spurs give their point back? since Jurgen Klopp didn't like how they played. Heung-Min's son can't be underrated anymore, can he? As Barry predicted, Manchester City found it tough as they, checks notes, hammered Newcastle 5-0. The bad thing for Pep is that everybody wants Liverpool to win the league. The good things are they appear to be signing Haaland and not to be signing Pogba. In the race for the top four, Spurs point isn't that great after Arsenal's fourth win in a row with a lot of help from Leeds, who are now officially dirty again. And could Chelsea stuff it up right at the death in front of their new owners? Another big win for Everton, while Villa knocked stuffing out of Burnley. Watford are down, the fans a little too far away for Roy to applaud. And then there's Brighton 4, Manchester United 0. The big surprise being that it wasn't a big surprise, even though Brighton never win at home. Also today, Sam Kerr's genius leads Chelsea women to their third WSL title in a row. There's Bristol Rovers' ludicrous promotion, some more Charlie Adam gold, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hi, Max. Hello, Barney Ronnie. Hello, everyone. And hello, Troy Townsend. Hello, Max. Uh, now, um, uh, assistant producer George, or producer George, whatever he wants to be called, put in the odds of the uh, Premier League title and the top four based on stats perform AI-powered predictions, or as I like to call it, Ziggy from Quantum Leap, who says there's an 82.47% chance that Manchester City will win the league and now a 79.29% chance that Arsenal will qualify for the Champions League. Let's start at Anfield. Liverpool won, Spurs won. Uh, Barney, you were there. How was it? Yeah, it was good. Um, uh, I mean, you, you left the game, the game, the game, sort of final whistle went and you thought, that's a really good performance from Tottenham. And it felt like a kind of victory, you know, Antonio Conte's sort of performative coaching and the feeling of endless blocks. They were very well drilled. They had a, a week to prepare for it, which really does make a difference. And you felt it was a really good point for Spurs. But in the end, I guess it was a kind of game that cancelled itself out in that it wasn't good for Liverpool. But they, um, who were just kind of slightly back on their levels. It was like one of those things where the adrenaline kind of started to flow at one point in the second half, but they just weren't quite precise enough. And... Um, it kind of it's a it's a strange way to kind of if it is a way of deciding the title race. It was a strange game for it because it kind of felt you didn't feel that Liverpool particularly failed in any way or failed to do anything. Uh, they played well and they pressed hard and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was just um, it was just a really solid Tottenham performance, which seems like an odd like a kind of oxymoron in itself. And and it's quite Tottenham to have produced a really defining, encouraging performance in a game that ultimately just means nothing and essentially just spoils someone else's party. Like that, that's the greatest moment of Spurs' season is this game that kind of just means nothing, but they got in the way of a lot of shots. Um, but it was a really good occasion and it did make me think um, at the incredible level of some of these teams, that a game like that, of that quality can feel as though it was slightly disappointing uh, or didn't have any resolution to it. I suppose, Barry, we have to credit Tottenham because Liverpool, they're the first side to stop Liverpool from winning at Anfield in the Premier League since Brighton last October. I mean, that, that is quite a long time, Barry, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I heard this amazing stat, actually. Was it Virgil van Dijk? Has he, he never lost at Anfield? In Something like, like that. In 68, 69 performances, which... 
I found quite remarkable. And then I suppose I thought how often Liverpool win and how hard they are to beat. And it probably isn't that remarkable after all. But um, yeah, I was a bit surprised. Jurgen Klopp was quite sniffy after the game. He's he's not a particularly good loser. I know they didn't lose, but you know, effectively they did. Um, but I, I thought Tottenham could have won the game and they should have won it at the end. Um Hoiberg had a had a glorious chance, which he, he didn't have the confidence to take himself. And uh you know, that would have been quite the smash and grab. But um I, I suppose I I understand Klopp's kind of petulance, but I, I thought it was misplaced because uh Tottenham probably should have beaten him. And what else are you supposed to do, Troy? I mean Liverpool are really good. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's Jurgen Klopp just trying to tell other t- tell Real Madrid to just go at them from minute one. Is that what he's trying to do there? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, he wants the game as open as possible for his attacking lineup to uh, to exploit spaces and and score goals at will for the fist pumps and the the everything else that he does at the end of the game. But you know, this is a real. This I thought this was a real Conte type performance from Tottenham. Um, the one that I think he wants on a more consistent basis but doesn't get. Um, I thought they were brilliant second half. Counter-attacking goal was first class. Um, You know, let's ignore Emerson Royals lump up into the air, but the way Harry Kane took it down and then, you know, ball wide, I think everyone thought he might have shot, but Sessegnon and then Tasson was was brilliant. And and Barry's right, they they probably um, should have nicked it at the end. You know, Liverpool huffed and puffed. Spurs were disciplined in their performance, their defence, who have, have been ripped apart a lot this season, um, you know, maintain that discipline as well. And I thought they had the best players on the park. And like I said, a, a performance that we probably haven't seen from Spurs that only gains them a point. But it is a point closer to Arsenal. And it does mean that if they win at home, then it's reduced again in the North London derby. And it makes for a really exciting end of the season. But Klopp, will have to accept that teams are not going to be as open as he wants them to be so that they can just walk straight through them and put the ball in the back of the net. It was, you know, this performance was all about Spurs and it was how Spurs approached the game and, and, and they approached it in a manner that Conte will no doubt be excited about. Um, and he learnt lessons from his team and, and that they were good lessons to learn. Do you think, Bernie, they learn, like they practice blocking shots all the time? It must be very painful in winter, mustn't it? You know, Ben Davis just... Hurling himself, you know, people just like a, maybe they have a machine that just fires balls for Ben Davis to hurl himself at. It's a sort of part of football that we don't ever really talk about. It's just oh, that was good, but like I guess there's a there's a skill. It seemed to be happening a lot, especially in that 15 minutes before half time, where you just felt Liverpool were just going and going and going without creating much. I guess I thought the the the, the number of block shots was kind of a, a tactical thing in that they played a back five. And they they sat deep, and they played very tight together, and so you're going to end up blocking shots because the opponent's going to have the ball a lot in those areas, and you're you're you know it, it was a function of the way they played, and also of their complete commitment to defending. They knew they were in for a real sort of shift, and everybody kind of bought into it. I mean, just on the Van Dyke thing, he has lost games at Anfield, but not in the Premier League. I think that's a Premier League record. And and it's an extraordinary one, um, but they they um, they were just slightly below that level. And and um, sorry, what was the question, Max? 
I can't remember. It was about a machine firing balls at Ben Davis. It wasn't really a question when you actually an- when, when, you, when you analyze it. You wrote Barney about about Hyung Min Sun and about whether he is underrated or not. I mean, he's so yeah, his well. record in twenty twenty two is is ridiculous. Scored more goals than anyone else in the Premier League. Been involved in more goals than anyone else. Two goals behind Mo Salah in the Golden Boot race without taking any penalties. Salah's five of Salah's goals are penalties. Equaled Robin Van Persie's record for the most goals scored with the weaker foot in a single Premier League season. I mean, who works this out? Of 13. He's, you know, he's a sensational player. Yeah, he, um, I mean, it seems silly to call anyone underrated in this incredibly, ridiculously kind of hyped league where people fawn over players relentlessly and and you're paid millions and millions of pounds. But I guess uh, the point being, he just has a really complete set of skills and it seems like he can do so much. He's got so much range. He can sprint 40 yards with a ball. He can play a short game. He can shoot from distance. He can finish. Maybe he's just rated. Maybe he's just a really good player at a good club and he's in exactly the right spot. He doesn't have an, an angsty, aggressive agent who wants to move him on, which helps so you don't get all that kind of unsettling transfer talk. I mean, he did national service, didn't he? Which kind of put a bit of a hole in the middle of his career. Um, and maybe put people off from signing him when he was that kind of age. And he's he steadily got better as well. And he's just got a bit better every season, more consistent. And he sort of crept up to a level where you think, well, he played against Mo or on the opposite flank to Mo Salah on on Saturday and didn't lose anything at all by comparison. And that's how good he is and could probably play in, in any team. But he just looks really happy where he is. And that's kind of a nice thing. I was going to say, is he the happiest footballer that we've ever seen? He never seems to not smile, Son, doesn't he? He's just got this like buzz about him and and the kind of enjoyment of the game that just is is great. Now there was that moment where he um, he he was kicked by Antonio Rudiger and he kicked him back and got sent off and he really wasn't happy. He wasn't happy then. <laughs> you had I to remember one out, didn't you? It was in that it was in that documentary where he was just. I had him down the tunnel being incredibly angry. But you're right, I can't I can't instinctively think of that many other incredibly happy footballers. Um do we is it good that Liverpool won't win the quadruple now, probably? Yeah, I, I mean from a sort of point of view of having to comment on it, I kind of can I summon you have to summon this sense of ultimacy and the right words and the way to kind of capture and describe this thing. I mean, football elite football teams have got stronger compared to the rest they've got bigger they have the gap at the top is larger there's always been teams who are more powerful and richer but the fact is that it's now literally impossible for most teams to win these prizes so you're 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 narrowing it down to a smaller and smaller number of teams who can win things the best players always end up at certain clubs so there's been this sort of stratification so it is now going to happen this way. So you still have to talk about these teams as the greatest ever team while acknowledging that the game has changed and the situation in, say, the 1970s, I'm going on about the past here, where um, one of six or seven teams might win the league is just it's just impossible. So you have to kind of factor in that. And a part of me doesn't want it to be the case that these prizes are just going to be divvied up between a small number of teams year after year after year. The Premier League provides the finalists or one of the finalists in the Champions League every single year, often two. It feels smaller. Globalisation makes the world feel smaller. You're not having to deal with Red Star Belgrade anymore or a brilliant team coming out of France that nobody expected. So 
I think it's slightly demeaned as an idea and it's definitely going to happen because power is concentrated in so few teams. So from that point of view, I'm just pouring a load of cold <laughs> gravy over the whole glorious experience and saying it's well, uh, worthless. Talking about clubs with loads of money, uh, it was uh, uh, Al Gasago or the oil firm, or you could just call it Human Rights Watch, I guess. Uh, Manchester City 5, Newcastle nil. Owen says, after scoring two in injury time today, are Manchester City trolling themselves? <laughs> I did like as a question. Um, uh, Ricardo says, the last two City games versus Leeds and Newcastle, Barry has predicted the Oppo could get something out of this uh, in uh, quotation marks, both dumped four and five nil. Does he have an Acker finishing with City winning the league? And is he trying to work his Ian Acho style <laughs> voodoo on it? Yeah, and once again, Barry, you weren't quite on it with this prediction. No, I was completely wrong. Um, I expected more from Newcastle and I didn't expect quite as much from Man City. I thought they would have a, a might still be traumatised by the events of whatever Tuesday or Wednesday night. And they clearly weren't. And uh, yeah, hands up. I, I got it completely wrong. But, you know, Manchester City are quite, they're a better team than Newcastle. No one doubts that at all. But I, I expected more from Newcastle and, and less from City. And uh, yes, I, I was wrong. <laughs> That's all I wanted. Um, Troy, that, that I, I can't, was it the fifth goal? was absolutely beautiful. The one where Grealish cuts in and Foden plays it and Sterling finishes it off. It was so, it was just a wonderful bit of football. It, it was it was a joy to watch. Grealish enjoyed, uh, they brought Trippier on, didn't they? And it seemed to to really excite Grealish because he enjoyed going up against him and Trippier, obviously not match fit, um, struggled a little bit. So for the, both the last two goals, Grealish took him on a, on a run down the left-hand side. The Foden, uh, you know, the, back, the, the flick back into Grealish is just the things that, you know, young players do when they're when they're at the top of the game, or players do when they're at the top of the game. And um, you know, and Sterling's finish was was great. But I thought Newcastle put everything into the first ten or fifteen minutes and hoped to probably get ahead and and provide that extra bit of nervousness about Man City. Chris Wood had an opportunity, Lascelles had an opportunity, um, which ended up in a disallowed goal. But I don't know how he hit his own player with the header when it should have been easier to have put the ball on target. Um, and after that, I actually thought they were quite embarrassing, to be totally honest, up until Callum Wilson had an effort later on as well. I just It's almost like they gave up. Um, and if you're going to give up against City, they are going to continuously put the ball in the back of the net. So um, I think Eddie Howe would have learned a lot about his side, but I also think Pep would have learned again about his side, particularly with the amount of injuries that they're picking up lately. I found this interesting, that uh, only Diogo Jota who is five foot ten has scored more headers this season in the Premier League than Raheem Sterling, um, who scored three. Which makes me wonder, Barney, is this a crisis for the big man? What's happened? What's happened to the big man? Well, you know, Chris Wood missed his chance. You know, there are some big men around, but they're not nodding it in at the far post. I mean, you talked about you know the crisis in football. You know, just a few minutes ago, this feels to me as big. Anyhow, afterwards said, you know, on days like today when I'm making judgments on players' futures based on what I see, um, fascinating with all the caveats to see what what he does. And I thought there was an interesting, they sort of looked on match of the day, they looked at Sam Maximum basically not tracking Cancelo. And what's interesting, Troy, when you compare him to people like Salah and Son, who do all that hard work as well and are probably better than him, 
it's sort of quite interesting that there's like elite footballers who are incredibly skillful and then incredibly skillful footballers who just can't be bothered to do the hard stuff. Well, you know, I knew he was going to highlight St. Maximum and his highlight reel, his show reel must be amazing because it's going to show all the great bits, the stepovers and the, the passing the ball backwards and, and all that kind of stuff. But if you're asking Max to Maximum to do stuff the other way, you've got to, you've got to know what you're going to get because that's just not in his DNA. We've seen him enough now to know that he's a forward-thinking player that will do everything that he can to to score goals, create goals, although, you know, he gets to the edge of the box and sometimes I think to myself, is he everything that everyone keeps saying about him? But going the other way, I just don't think he's got the right mind and the right mentality. And that's what makes those other players so good is that they're prepared to dig in, they're prepared to do the hard graft the other way while still knowing that they can contribute um, at the top end of the pitch. And I don't know, I saw him say some, was it during the week when he said he's, he's, he's not ready to win the Ballon d'Or, but he will do, you know, he's preparing himself that he will do later on in, in his career. Well, I'm not so sure about that. So maybe he, he has to start learning what the other, the other side of the game is as well before he even thinks of describing himself next to the Ballon d'Or, let's say. Alistair Maxman, he, when Newcastle signed him from Nice, he, he came with a reputation for being difficult and a bit of a diva. And there hasn't been much evidence of that since. But I think in recent weeks, there are, I, I get the impression some Newcastle fans are getting a bit fed up with him or his, his lack of effort. Um, Pep, after the game, said everyone in this country supports Liverpool. The media and everyone. Um, uh, <laughs> why, why is he saying... What, What's the point of saying that, Barney? Well, I mean, I can say it's definitely not true. The inside line on that is that the people in the media definitely... I mean, you know, Liverpool Liverpool have been a successful club for so long that obviously there are lots of people who've played for them and probably grew up supporting them who are now working in the media. But um, you know, on a personal level, the, the, the you know, real talk... Um, it's actually really nice to go. I love going to Man City. It's a really nice place to go. It's a lovely place to work. They look after you. People at the club are really nice. It's easy to get there. Um, I'm very happy for them to keep on on winning. But there is, I think, probably people who complain about that, well, why don't you want us to win, have to accept that it's a project team. Um, it's, a, it's a new thing. It's a prefab thing. You, you know, we know this. It's not surprising in any way. It's not, it doesn't have that depth of kind of associated feeling. It's just a fact. Um, the old Manchester City was quite a different entity. But this new club, it's this equation, talent plus money equals success. We know that. If you buy the best coach and all the backroom staff make the thing perfect, no, the playing budget is bottomless. You're going to have success. And how... How easy is it to kind of love that and feel drawn in by it as a as they've they've borrowed a method and style. They're kind of like, you know, Oasis to the Beatles. It's a very efficient, slightly repetitive reboot of a genuine, creative, organic thing. Uh, it's very good, but can you really kind of uh, love it or feel drawn to it as a neutral in the way, you know, Real Madrid has this ludicrous kind of history? I'm sure it will come in time. But right now, if you... You take, for example, if you take Guardiola out of Man City, um, what what is it exactly? What what's that thing? Um, he's been there for six years. The club has been this new club for a decade, and it's just not. It's it's a slightly um, brittle entity. 
it doesn't bend with the wind. I feel that this is why they often lose games like the Madrid game where the world goes slightly mad because there just isn't that same strange, intangible sense of something that will bend with the wind. And they, they just seemed a bit callow and fragile in midweek. Um, so I think Guardiola just has to accept that it comes with the territory. But there's definitely not hostility towards them. But on an individual level, people in the media, I think, really like going there. And, it, and it's a nice place to be. Yeah. And, and they're beautiful to watch. So I've had so many wonderful nights watching that team. Will they be more beautiful? And will it be more fun to go there when Erling Braut Haaland uh, arrives? A plucky signing from Man City there. You know, they've really dug out an unmined diamond haven't they, Troy, that no one else knew about? Apparently, the Athletic reporting that he's agreed personal terms. It did that last month and, you know, City will pay Dortmund the release fee. Uh, also, according to the Athletic, that, that Paul Pogba's turned down the chance to join City, which seems the wrong way around to me. But anyway... Um, Let's start with Pogba. Pogba gets no love from the British media, so I'm staring down the barrel here and looking at you three and saying he gets no love from our British media. And I wouldn't know why he'd want to stay in England, to be fair, um, to continue his career. Um, yes, there's a lot of controversy around him, but, uh, you know, he's uh, before Ronaldo, he was the problem at Man United, wasn't he? And he still remains the problem. So I'm not quite sure why he would stay in England anyway. But, but, but he hasn't but, He hasn't really delivered. He hasn't, he hasn't lived up to expectations, but there's a lot of players in that Manchester United squad that haven't lived up to expectation that have been in and around the fee that Pogba was and um, you know, there's times when he's not even involved in the game and he's still the target of some hate, etc. Troy, did, what, what would he deserve love for exactly? I mean, do, do you think he gets it worse than Harry Maguire, who's the same, roughly the same price? Oh, he has on a much more consistent basis, Barney, on a much more consistent basis. The hate towards Maguire has only happened in recent times. The, you know, his performances have not been exceptional at Man United consistently either. They're a failing club with failing players, with multiple managers, and they're throwing an interim in there as well. Um, but listen, I'm not saying that Pogba deserves every... All I'm saying is, is that I don't believe that he has received any love here, and his performances, um, even when they have been good, have not been recognised. But, you know, when you put everything together in terms of the gross fee, etc., and the wages, then, you know, he has to live and die by that, I suppose. But listen, I think that he'll go abroad because I think that might be better for him. I'm not quite sure he's suited to the Premier League anyway, um, his style of play. And, and that's probably what makes him a target. Haaland on another matter is, is, is again, he's been scoring goals in abundance, hasn't, hasn't he, out in Germany? And it's one that I think that everyone will watch carefully because they will expect him to come over here and do exactly the same um, in a very progressive team that normally doesn't have a, a vocal point in it, which could make it difficult for him. Um, but he brings that excitement with him again. And, and it may be the one that tips Man City, you know, to the Champions League um, because they've won enough um, Premier Leagues, haven't they? So they do need to, to, to get over the line in the Champions League. And, you know, it will be interesting to see whether he hits the ground running and whether he does provide the, the final piece of the jigsaw uh, that brings Pep that glory in Europe. All right, that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll do the race for the top four. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Alex says, I'm from Birmingham, but I can't come to your live show. Do you want me to get in touch with the local schools to fill up the seats like they do in the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they can do an essay about 
defecating on public transport. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're on the road in June and July. Um, we haven't sold out in Birmingham. We have sold out in Dublin. We've got another night in Dublin, which I think is getting close to being sold out. Leeds, Manchester, a couple in London um, at the Hackney Empire, which, as I've said to Barry, is quite big, and in Glasgow. So, look, if you like the pod and, you know, you listen to us all the time, in many ways you should feel duty-bound to buy a ticket and come. Or at least buy a ticket. If you don't come, that's okay. <laughs> uh, and we'll announce the lineups for all the gigs this week, hopefully. On the subject of the US tour that I'm really pushing, uh, we were invited to the Bahamas this week for a one-person uh, gig, four panellists and one person in the crowd, but we're in. Pamela says, um, uh, I asked my daughter who lives in Chicago about Melor, this drink. She remarked that it's a, quote, fun bonding experience to consume with friends and truly the most awful thing she's ever tasted. She then invited me to try it the next time I visit. Make of that what you will. Love the pod. A live show in the Bahamas would give me an excellent excuse to pop over from Miami where I live. Better yet, consider a date in Miami. Okay, we'll go to Miami. Thank you for making my commute something to look forward to. Hey, no worries, Pam. Thanks for listening. To the Emirates, Arsenal 2, Leeds 1. So after those three straight defeats, Arsenal won their last four Premier League games. Barry, they really got some help from Leeds here, didn't they? Yes, um, and, and ended up making heavy weather of what should have been a very straightforward win. But uh, Ilan Meslier, I think he's a good keeper, but he is prone to the occasional you know, uh, rush of blood to the head, and, and he gifted them the opener. And... I just don't know what Luke Ayling was doing when he uh, slid through Martinelli to get sent off. And, and it was a thoroughly deserved red card. And Rafina was very, very, very lucky not to join him because he almost talked himself into two yellows. So, um, yeah, it was just kamikaze stuff from Leeds who... Yeah, kamikaze stuff from Leeds. Arsenal should have won far easier than they did, but we're kind of hanging on in the last few minutes against 10 dispirited men. So, um, Barney, I hadn't noticed Leeds being dirty. Like, this is their, their 95th and 96th yellow cards this season, along with that red, uh, setting a new record for the most bookings for a club within a single Premier League season. And they've got, you know, three more games to really make that record their own haven't they? I hadn't noticed this was sort of part of Bielsa's football or... I, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's dirty really. I mean, I know the tackle was bad on... What it is, I think the Bielsa style reduces the game to a lot of duels. There's a lot of collisions, a lot of one-on-one -on -one man marking. So you're going to have a lot of collisions, a lot of people running past other people or grappling with people. And a lot of the yellows are are just a consequence of that rather than sort of cheating or overly physical stuff. Um, yeah, it's just a very bruising style. Um, I find I do find it amazing what's happened to them under Jesse Marsh. Um, the attempt to completely change the style of play midway through a season um, is amazing. I mean, it's a really odd thing to do and to, to the assumption that that might work. I mean, obviously you can try and tighten things up and, you know, go back to basics and get everyone to defend a bit more as a team, but he's really changed the team. And there's some part of me that is pleased that that is not as easy as he would like it to be. The Premier League has to be difficult. Football has to be difficult. The idea that you could just sort of walk in uh, like a kind of... Um, you know, Ivy League uh, motivator, say a few things, because he talks a lot of stuff, doesn't he, about what he's going to do. 
And uh, American people won't like this. Sorry. Well, this is terrible. We have an anti-American bias, Barney. So this. Yeah, is, I know. Yeah, I'm really nervous about this. But carry on. Kind of ennobles the whole thing, really. You know that teams that are failing are failing for a reason. So, um, yeah, it's a shame. But um, sorry, are are you in any way related to the Barney Ronay who famously pointed out that Thomas Tuchel fixed Chelsea's defence in an hour? Yeah, but maybe Thomas Tuchel. Um, is a tactical genius okay. and maybe Je- Jesse Marsh isn't, you know, uh, also Chelsea's players are world-class footballers, you know, one of the best managers in the world and some of the best players in the world. Also, he was coming from, <laughs> from the previous guy. There was a bit of like low hanging fruit to be scooped up there. Leeds are struggling, you know, a guy who's never worked in the league before or, or really in, you know, that much in, in European football. It's a really big ask to come in and change that around. What Bielsa did with that squad was quite miraculous. They've become players who we really respect and know, but they were a championship-level squad when they came up, and that hasn't really changed. What he did with them was was really good. So the idea that you can come in and just slightly change it and immediately improve them, if it was that easy, I would be disappointed. It's hard, and, and there's something in me that quite likes that. Troy, Eddie Nketiah has done very well since he got his opportunity. How good is he at football? Because I just I just don't really know. You, you asked me this question on the last one, Max, and we were Oh, no, still deb- I'm like a broken record. Here we are. It's finally, finally unearthed. I've got six questions. Three of them are, that was good, Barry, and the rest of it... I haven't got a clue. Do you want me to ask a new question? How Can you ask good me, is uh, Eddie Nketiah? Okay, <laughs> let me rephrase that. How much better has Eddie Nketiah got in the last five weeks, Troy? Because I remember asking you on the previous pod, was he any good? Clearly, we know he's good now. But like, has has he improved? Does he think has he made that number nine shirt his own? What's his? What does he do now? What he's doing, what he's doing here, Max, is he's staking a claim for sure. Um, he's getting a run of games, and in getting a run of games, and if you're scoring goals as well as a forward, then your confidence goes up. You know, he's always had the ability. He's just not had the run of games that has probably given him the opportunity to show that. And I think, sorry to be repetitive, I said on the last pod that I think that's okay the- when you've been asked the same question. <laughs> Coming off the bench consistently and having 10 minutes or, you know, whatever it is, is not really going to benefit him. But he's he's putting himself in in the shot window, I'd say, because I still think Arsenal are going to look for a number nine, um, someone who, you know, has international recognition. And will that put him back to a bit part come next season? So... What he's doing here is he's actually showing Arsenal that he's good enough. He's proving to himself, as he would probably know, that he's good enough. But he's also alerting other clubs to say, um, you know, here I am if Arsenal go out and sign big as a forward and I'm reduced to, uh, you know, the second or third in line again. So um, being repetitive, again, Palace were interested in big time and I think they're still interested in centre forward. So who knows? Or maybe this goal could these goals could take him into the European stage. Arsenal don't want to buy big, do they? Because we've established that big doesn't score goals anymore in, in the Premier League. Um, now, look, if Arsenal win at Spurs on Thursday, then they're in the Champions League. If Spurs win, Arsenal have to go to Newcastle, which will be Newcastle's last home game of the season, and Everton, who might still be trying to stay up. Spurs are home to Burnley and away to Norwich. I mean, you can see Spurs having it in their hands and losing at Norwich, can't you? <laughs> Just the classic Spurs way. But the other interesting thing, Barry, is Chelsea, right, who drew with Wolves. They let that two-goal lead slip to that injury time equaliser for Connor Cody. They've got to go to Leeds the week before the cup final. I mean, there's this week, right? So 
that they'll have the cup final on their minds. They do have Leicester at home, Watford at home. You'd expect them to win the last two, but they could fall out of this. Like it would be pretty miraculous. I, I put a 20 quid bet on with the Chelsea supporting Palomine yesterday that they would fall out of the top four. And I hadn't thought it through. So the, the fact that Arsenal and Spurs have to play each other kind of enhances their chances, doesn't it? So I, I would say it's very unlikely. Put it this way. When it was pointed out to me that Arsenal Spurs, that I'd forgotten Arsenal Spurs still had to play each other, I immediately went, swore loudly and tried to weasel out of the best. But obviously he was having none of it. Um, but it's possible. I, I don't think it'll happen. Um, Todd Burley, the man leading the consortium, uh, watched from the stands. Uh, he's agreed a deal to take over Chelsea. It was in the early hours of Saturday morning. It includes backing from Clear Lake Capital, a US investment firm, beat off late competition from uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe and other consortiums, consortia, not sure. Uh, this is the second time he's tried to buy Chelsea. Uh, his $2.2 billion offer was rejected in 2019. The owners have started making plans for the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge. The long-term plan apparently is to turn the ground into a destination stadium where fans will want to spend a significant amount of time. Um, craft beer and bands. That's what Tottenham have. You know, someone playing acoustic covers uh, in, the, in the gangway. Chelsea said, of the total investment being made, 2.5 billion will be applied to purchase the shares in the club. Such proceeds will be deposited into a frozen UK bank account with the intention to donate 100% to charitable causes as confirmed by Roman Abramovich. Um, let's go to the Amex. Uh, Brighton 4, Manchester United nil. John says, assume the first section of the pod will be dedicated to Pascal Gross. What will be in parts two and three, along with footage of him skinning Fred about 100 times on the left wing? And Adam says, is Pascal Gross now worth both his literal and metaphorical weight in gold? Uh, what a performance from Brighton. And he quote tweeted Edward Woodhouse, who says, apparently Pascal Gross's weight, 78 kilos in gold, would be worth £2.536 million. We signed him for roughly £2.5 million, according to reports. So in purely mathematical terms, this ridiculous metric is for once correct. Pascal Gross is worth his weight in gold. Um, Brighton were brilliant, Troy. We will obviously spend more time talking about Manchester United being hopeless, but let, let us celebrate Pascal Gross and his friends. Uh, they they were as good as all of what you've just said, Max, to be totally honest. Um, listen, they, they've found form again, haven't they, Brighton? And they've found it just at the right time to finish the season off well. Um, I don't think it takes too much to to take apart this Man United side, but they did it in, in, in a real good way. Um, you know, they were energetic. Um, they got to things first. They had so much quality in that final third as well. And you you look at Brighton and you look at United and think, well, who should have the quality in the final third? But they, they just produced some some great football with some really, really good goals. I was disappointed for, for Danny Welbeck because I'm sure that he wanted to get on the score sheet as well. And the lot saved that off the line, didn't it, before he, it hit Trossard and, and Cucurella, who I've spoken about on this pod before. Um, you know, in tears after his goal. Um, I really want to find out what those tears were about. Were they the same tears as Mourinho's tears or were they different tears? I don't know. But for tears to come out after scoring against Man United, maybe he was a Man United fan and it's his every dream to score against them. I'm, I'm not so sure. But it was an excellent performance. Um, it, it showed where Potter's team, I think they're ninth now, aren't they? Have they got their highest pos position yet with highest points tally? 
You know, he's going in the right direction. I always wonder, because they have dips in the season, they very much remind me of Southampton, who have got a bigger dip. But they have dips in the season where you start to question um, where they're going. But ever since, and I, Max, I'm going to be repetitive again, seeing as this is a repeat show. Um, since they told their fans to stop telling their players to shoot, they have scored some really, really good goals and quite a lot of them as well. Um, so they're in the right direction. I think that will set them up to maybe loosen the purse strings a little bit next season to get that centre forward they need to do better. Do you think it's a South Coast thing? Southampton, Brighton, it's just too relaxed down there. You just can't maintain. It's like Jack D, didn't he go on stage in Brighton and say, I arrived in Brighton and all my troubles disappeared and they all cheered. And then he said, and so did my ambition. And they were like, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, uh, on to Manchester United, Barney. Um, they, they weren't as good in this football match as Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, have you noticed any problems at Old Trafford in, in, the, <laughs> in recent times? Yeah, I mean, I've actually been I've been sitting here thinking about Paul Pogba actually since, and thinking about what Troy said. I mean, Paul Pogba didn't play in this game, <laughs> and they they really was the worst. They just stopped. You know, there were weird spaces. It reminded me of games that I've played. You know, on a Sunday where the opposition are literally just playing triangles around you, and you can see the three passes ahead that are going to come. And it just felt too easy for them. Um, it was really quite something. I think we've all become Ralph Rangnick. We've all become, they, it's though they've employed a kind of um, like a, a medieval fool to stand there giving a commentary, to look appalled. His, his job is just to look appalled and to say the things that people can see. We were terrible. My God, they're, they're awful, aren't they? And everything was wrong. I mean, it doesn't help. And the fact that he keeps saying um, we need to get rid of these players and get other players is obviously going to lead to the team just self-destructing. But he he's checked out. Uh, and so have they. It's, uh, but I, I will say one thing. I know people love talking about cultural rot and systemic decay and everything's finished. I bet that it wouldn't be that hard to turn it around um, with just a bit, a different voice. Different. Neither is professional footballers. They're not decadents. They've got there somehow. A lot of them have risen from very difficult beginnings to become these things. They they are strong, intelligent people. There's just that it's all that, that someone's turned off the heat and the culture has just gone totally slack. Could they get Jesse Marsh in to say some things with that? Well, <laughs> he, could de- he would definitely say some things, um, but maybe someone else saying some things would be better. I, I, I actually think we should stop watching the other 10 players and just get Ronaldo on player cam because his reaction every time they concede a goal is a thing of beauty and his his desperation at the rest of his colleagues is is just, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. So if we could stop watching United and just watch Ronaldo player cam, that would do me for the last but, one game but- they got left off. Barney mentioned Sunday League. You know, you don't want your centre forward laughing. You don't want, you know, in the dressing room, he's just going to be like, you're all shit. I'm not staying for a beer. I'm, I've had it with you lot. You're all shit. None of those shit. Sunday roast potatoes, yeah? Exactly. He'd be like, no, I'm not, stay- I'm not staying until the scratch card. We find out who's won the scratch card. I've had enough of this. Uh, <laughs> let's go to the King Power. Big win for Everton, Barry, wasn't it? And that volley from Mikalenko, just technically so difficult to do that. Yeah. Well, it's a long time since I've volleyed a football match, so it's I've forgotten how difficult it is. It was it was just a superb strike, uh, a, a, a well fought win, or probably deserved win for Everton. Leicester's um, just total inability to defend corners, 
and and free kicks is uh, costing them dearly this season. Um, and for all that, they did create chances, enough chances to probably won the game. But Everton wanted it more, Max. They wanted it. Yeah, I enjoyed Mason Holgate when he was asked, you, you couldn't miss, could you? He went, well, I've actually missed quite a lot of chances <laughs> like that. <laughs> it was really nice, wasn't it? Um, so you sort of imagine now that, that, that Frank Lampard will get this team out of trouble, Barney, or is that, am I speaking too, is that too soon to say? Yeah, I think um, I think that they will not get relegated. I think they'll be okay. Um, as they never, you know, looking at the equality they have, they, they should never be in this position to begin with. But um, Burnley and Leeds just are worse, basically. And Burnley, Burnley had um, two players playing up front for them against Aston Villa who have two goals in their last 60 games combined. I mean, Ashley Barnes hasn't scored this season. It's going, you know, you're asking some quite difficult things to happen to go and beat um, beat, beat Aston Villa. Um, so I, I think that they're kind of doomed, unfortunately, uh, much as I quite enjoy watching them. The big problem with Veghorst and Barnes, as we really know, is both quite big, aren't they? And, and but they can't be expected to score goals anymore. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I want to highlight, and it's not Frank. I want to highlight those Everton fans who have turned up in their masses. Um, the send-off. So we we know about what happened before the Chelsea game and outside the ground and welcoming the players, but they turned up at the training ground on Saturday. Um, and they gave them just as a just a great send off um, as they did. And Frank and I think a number of others said they'd never seen anything like that before. And the, the power of these fans have driven the players on. If you want me to be totally honest, I thought it was a good game. I thought it was a nip and, nip and tuck game. Everton have only won one away from home, and it reminded me of that back at Brighton in August. Um, how organised they were, how resilient they were. Going ahead is massively important in these in these big games, particularly when you're fighting for points. And they did that, but then they contributed to their downfall. Shame <laughs> so <of Coleman>. funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when you're watching it as a neutral. It's not funny when you've got a vested interest in oh, it. Oh, I love it, that goal. It's my goal of the weekend. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're playing a, a, a someone who's not a natural centre back, they take up awkward positions. So Mina thought he was behind him, while Shames is actually trying to head the ball that Mina's about to head. And they leave it for Dakar. But let, let's give a, a massive shout out to Jordan Pickford because Barry's right. They did have a lot of chances in the second half. And for the second week running, he's the goalkeeper of the weekend because he pulled out some great stops, particularly from, from Barnes and Mendy. I'm still nervous. Um, and a game against Watford away, which almost should be a guaranteed three points. You kind of never know, do you? So with the home games that they've got, um, I hopefully that they will be in a good position to, to survive and then hopefully never be in that position again for a really long time. Ryan says, how far is too far for you guys to walk to thank your supporters after getting relegated? <laughs> uh, uh, Peter says, Roy Hodgson applauded the Palace fans at Selhurst Park yesterday, didn't go over to the Watford fans as they were, quote, too far away. Is this the weakest excuse ever in football, Barry? Uh, I, sorry, this is news to me. I wasn't aware of this happened, but um, it, yeah, was there some? Was it pure laziness, or rather than well, any? The quote perceived... is the, the quote is, and and I, I I'm taking the quote from from people who messaged me. So, and a lot of people did. The quote is that they were too far away, um, which is, I mean, in my word, considering last week he was just sitting there in sunglasses, not making substitutions. Mention the Wolves player players being on the beach. I mean, Roy is absolutely it's glorious, isn't it? 
Max, I think he was taking in all the adulation from the Palace fans. He did it on the way out and he was definitely going to do it on the way back. I, I, thought, I think Roy thought that he was never going to be at Selhurst Park again. So to have the big send-off that he did at the end of last season and then to come back and see all those Palace fans, you know, singing again, he's one of our own and all that kind of stuff. He, he just ignored the Watford fans. It was like, I'm taking all of this in. And yeah, don't worry, them not going to abuse me when we're at home next and, and we'll take it from there. But um, good old Roy, as they say. Uh, look, we don't have a lot of time to talk about Norwich West Ham. Suffice to say, it was very much, it felt like an end of season game, didn't it? Shit goals, people just walking the ball in all over the place. Darren Bowen forgetting which way he was facing and putting one wide, but like, a good win for West Ham. They could still nick Man United sixth place. And Brentford three, Southampton nil. They're having a good season. Brentford and Southampton, like Troy says, are inconsistent. And that'll do for part two. Susie Rack will join us uh, as we congratulate Chelsea for winning the WSL for a third year running. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Let's welcome Susie Rack, the Guardian's women's football correspondent. Hey, Susie. Hey, Max. How you doing? Yeah, good. So look, Chelsea champions for a third season in a row. First ever side to do that. Six titles overall, double that of any other side. It, it, it sort of sounds simple, but it, it wasn't on the day, was it? It was, you know, you needed two tellies. The league title was changing hands. It was a brilliant end to the season. Oh, it was fantastic. It was just what the season needed. It's not the most exciting WSL season we've ever had. That was probably 2014 when um, Liverpool were in third and clinched on goal difference. But in terms of, yeah, top end drama it was great less great for me as a Arsenal fan sitting at the uh, sitting at the Chelsea game and our Chelsea supporting Mariam Naz at the Arsenal game um, which uh, felt slightly amusing and our messages back and forth were pretty hilarious but um, but yeah like I mean I just never thought even when Chelsea went down for the second time, I just never thought they were going to lose that game. There was never any point where I thought this was going to stay uh, with them dropping points because Man United are a great team, but they just don't have uh, the depth to their squad that Chelsea do. And I thought they'd tire. If the, if they heard the Manchester City Reading score, um, I think at half-time, Man City are already 2-0 up. Their chances of Champions League football are out the window. Then that might change things a little bit as well then Chelsea just have this like insane resilience to them that means that they just they they, they think they're going to win uh, Emma Hayes said in the post-match that Sam Kerr ran up to her after she had scored the equaliser just after the break and said this is our day this is our destiny this is and Emma Hayes is going to her what are you talking about it's 2-2 it's not 3-2 yet calm down and Sam Kerr's yelling, oh, it's our destiny, it's our destiny. And they go on and win 4-2 and she scores another worldie. And yeah, just never, ever believes that it's going to go any other way. So the two people that shout, this is your destiny, are Sam Kerr and Darth Vader, as far as I can tell. Um, Sam, that, that, uh, the, the technique and the vision for that volley where she chests it and she's a mile out is just so good, isn't it? You know, she doesn't, <laughs> by her own omission, score a lot of worldies. Um, you know, she actually said that her favourite goal this season was the one against Aston Villa in the 90-something minute that gave them a 1-0 win that sort of kept them in the title race and on this, what would become a nine-game winning run um, to win the title. They're the goals she loves. That's why Emma Hayes recruits players like that. She recruits players that don't 
care about themselves, <laughs> that only care about the team, that only care about like contributing to the team effort. And Sam's one of those players. I mean, yes, she chips in with 20 goals this season, 21 last season, wins the golden boot both years. But she's a very unselfish player too. You know, she provides a lot of assists. She set Frank Kirby up a lot at the start of the season. Yeah, just got a real like, I'm going to do anything. I don't care if this comes off my hip and like rolls into the goal and I trip over and land on my ass in the process as long as it goes in over the line I don't care how it's scored um interesting question from Chris which is how, how much do Chelsea owe their three WSL titles to Abramovich I presume it's a lot and and, and I guess the question is then you know do we how do we judge them and and also for for the fans like what will happen to Chelsea's women's team now and I guess you can't be sure of the answer to that. Obviously, you owe a lot of it to Abramovich in the same way you do the success of Chelsea men's team in the same way that Man City women's team's re-establishment in 2012 or 2013 or whenever it was, you know, when they rocked into the Women's Super League and bought some of the league's best players off of Arsenal in like Steph Horton and you know, recruited Jill Scott and people like that and gave them big contracts, you know, that money talks, doesn't it? Money um, talks up and down the leagues. A lot of um, Chelsea's success has come from Abramovich. It's, you know, no secret that Emma Hayes has spent big to get in Sam Kerr, to get in Penilla Harder. You know, she, I think, signed Fran Kirby, as was at that time the most expensive English player Um to be bought in the league you know she's been doing it for a long time but at the same time all of the teams at the top are spending big now um and it's sort of just uh, who is spending more big at any particular moment that is um is gonna clench the league at the same time the longevity of Emma Hayes gives them the edge and the experience from a footballing point of view that that helps them compensate perhaps when they're not paying uh, as much or recruiting as big as their nearest rivals in a particular season. But that's just because they've had the time to embed a squad. In terms of the future, hard to say. I mean, it would hard to, it'd be hard to think that any incoming owner would look at the women's setup and go, no, we're not going to fund that, given the the huge success it's bringing the club. You know, it's, it's almost guaranteed trophies every season, regardless of what your men's team does. Um, they had 20-odd thousand at Stamford Bridge a couple of seasons ago before the pandemic. Um, for the opening game of the season against Spurs, um, they, you know, are had a bad Champions League run this season, but are in theory Champions League contenders most years. So, like, yeah, if any owner is coming in and wants to upend that, it would, it would, it would reflect badly on on them and that feels like the opposite of the purpose of any owner buying a football club at the moment it's all about image and uh and you know how they present themselves look at Newcastle having 20 odd thousand I think it was for mm. a Newcastle women's game in the third or fourth tier of the of the women's league you know it's about image um and a women's team helps um helps cultivate that image so I don't think they've got anything to worry about it just just depends on how it affects them in the sort of short term in in terms of signing players and stuff but um particularly with a few outgoing players G so young um coming off the bench yesterday and then um setting up the goal that would put them ahead at 3-2 like that you know you just sort of watch that and thought wow there's going to be a big hole when she leaves because she was really important in linking up the 
the sort of huge gap between um, Sam Kerr in the midfield in that second half and really turning the game. And then they losing a couple of other players, but more fringe players, Jonna Anderson and, and Drew Spence, because their contracts are up and sort of time to, to move them on. But who they bring in in place is going to be the big question. Susie, I was at the Aston Villa yesterday watching Anita Santos' final game against Birmingham. Uh, we won't talk about the result, but what would you say about Anita's career and, and the stellar career that she's had and how it's impacted on the women's game over here? Oh, it's huge. I absolutely love Nita. She's just the most incredible player in person and probably doesn't get enough credit for what she's yeah. done throughout her career for England and for Arsenal and things. And then also, like, going to, you know, she played in the US and Sweden as well and really, like, sort of is hunting out professional football at a time when, you know, very, very few players um, in England are sort of getting the chance to to play professionally. And I think, like, this season at Aston Villa has really shown just, like, how brilliant she both has been but still is, um, even though she's, like, 37. Um, because, like, arguably she could go on for another couple of seasons. And I think, like, I sat down with her and she said that to me. She said, you know, few people have said, oh, you know, maybe maybe one more year, maybe just do one more year. And she's very much, um, like, you know, said, I want to be in control of my destiny. I want to own yeah. the way I go out. And, um, uh, and not many players have the chance to do that. You know, you get injuries, you lose form. Like, it, it's nice for me to be able to go out where... Um, you know, where I'm at sort of peace where I am um, in my career and what I'm going to do next and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love her because she is a real like analytical thinker um, about the game and its place and its purpose. And, uh, you know, you could chat to her for hours in a pub yes. about the, the state of women's football, the state of football generally, um, the state of society generally. And like, yeah have a really really good time so yeah like real asset to like punditry and stuff going forward I think like for me and management um you know she came from a West London council estate um and is like really big on um inclusivity and accessibility in women's football which has arguably gone backwards uh Susie is Jordan Nobbs likely to miss the Euros uh, I saw her get injured in the I think it was Arsenal's game against Tottenham she did. She looked distraught, and she, of course, missed the last World Cup as well, didn't she? Through injury. Yeah, and the Euros before that, she's not had. Oh. <laughs> she's not oh. had a good, uh, good run. Uh, they haven't said. Um, they said it is a, a knee injury, and um, but they've not said the extent of it. I don't think it sounds good. Um, that said, I, like she's not. You know, she's sort of been on the almost the fringes of Arsenal and the fringes of England for a while now. So I, I don't know if she'd even make the squad. In the first place, I think it would be, I, I think she probably would, but it would be um, sort of dependent on other players and, and, you know, kind of where she fits. She was sort of finding a bit of four, but she's really struggled to get a regular space. And whilst, you know, she's got the talent and her, like coming out of the, her ears, she's not really had a run of games that has allowed her to sort of hit the form that was so so excellent before the world cup um that meant that when she got injured it was the difference of people going england are going to win the world cup to there's no way england are going to win the world cup it's not quite the same this time around because she's never really um recaptured that form but it is a big blow um because she's just like a individually phenomenally talented player on her day uh susie thanks so much for your time as always 
No worries. Susie right there, the Guardian women's football correspondent. Michael says a shout out to Bristol Rovers and their 7-0 promotion clinching win. He says, I was Elliot Anderson's head of year at school. And while I had literally nothing to do with his development, it's pleasing to see this Newcastle Loney playing regular football doing so well, one to watch. So yeah, Bristol Rovers beat Scunthorpe 7-0 against uh, who had already been relegated to clinch promotion. They had to win by five goals more than Northampton, who were at Barrow. Northampton were 3-0 up after 22 minutes. <laughs> poor, poor Northampton fans. At halftime, Bristol Rovers were 2-0 up. Northampton were 3-1 up. And then Bristol Rovers just scored a lot of goals. Um, and God, you have to... Northampton, talk about Man City getting back up after Real Madrid. For that Northampton Town team to get back up for the playoffs uh, will be extraordinary. Um, uh, uh, Baz, you've got Sunderland tonight. Nervous? Um, yeah. I mean, they, they have a one-goal lead going to Hillsborough. I don't know if it'll be enough. Barney, you watched the uh, the other side of that last night, didn't you? Yeah, it was a really good game and a really good second leg. And, you know, MK Dons, to be fair, gave it everything. But I I mean, I was sort of watching as a semi-Wickham uh, fan. Um, uh, actually, my wife is a Wickham fan, partly because she's a Akin Fenwer fan. He's a bit of a sort of local hero around here. Actually, she used to teach his his son. Um, and he was he was like uh, everyone's favourite dad at the school. He was like the most, uh, all the teachers would all sort of, you know, get a bit twittery when he came in, but a genuinely like really n- nice guy. Um, and uh, yeah, she was w- watching it partly for just to, to support him. And then uh, she was absolutely blown away by Gareth Ainsworth, which is sort of one of those things where I think it's like something that you've got totally used to and you see as completely normal. And then someone who's not really, not really clocked him. Is he sort of, he's just this magnificent figure. You know, he looks like Lord Byron. Yeah, uh, she's sort of like, what, what is that? Um, and she was absolutely glued to Gareth Ainsworth from start to finish, um, which was obviously alarming. Um, but he's done a fantastic job, and it's great actually. The, the, uh, I'm really pleased for Hakim Femmer having that last day of his career at Wembley, and it'll be really interesting. And um, I think I support Wickham. Uh, Dave says, uh, was Charlie Adams' Cruyff turn and cross the greatest assist we'll see this season? If you haven't seen it, after his amazing dive last week, he was sort of in just in that sort of corner, like by the corner bag of his defending. And he beat a couple of men and then put the ball in and then the opposition scored. And you were like, why, why, why have you done that, Charlie? Anyway, uh, finally, Tom says, I bumped into Barry in the pub on Friday. He was wearing a Superman t-shirt. What superhero does he remind you of most? The best thing about this question is when I first read it, I thought that he, you were wearing a Superman outfit. <laughs> 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 This filled me with incredible joy. And I thought that occasionally Barry would just go, I'm going to the pub, what shall I wear? I'll dress as Superman, cape and everything. Um, but can you confirm, Barry, were you in a Superman t-shirt or full Superman? I was wearing a Superman t-shirt, uh, not a full Superman costume. And if we sell out Birmingham, will you come on stage in a Superman outfit? Uh, yes. Great. Uh, there is a reason to come to the show in Birmingham. Uh, and that'll do for today's pod we've gone on for long enough Uh, thank you Troy thanks very much Max thank you Barney cheers everyone thanks Barry you're welcome our producer is Silas Gray uh, with George Cooper and our executive producer is Danielle Stevens.
This is The Guardian.